Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You are listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Elise Thomas, a researcher at the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Thanks for joining us, Elise. Thanks for having me. That's a, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, what does a, a day at the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute involve these days, especially in these crazy times? Um, <laughs> we, we work across quite a range of topics at the moment. So we do look at sort of cyber issues and cyber policy, but our work is much broader than that these days. So we've got teams working on sort of... Uh, human rights issues in, in China, particularly looking at the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We've got teams working on issues around surveillance and privacy and spyware. The team that I work with does a lot of work on disinformation, really state-linked disinformation, but also starting to look at non-state actors and conspiracy theories. Just succinctly, could you explain the entire QAnon phenomenon to us? Sure. Um, so we'll be here for about six hours. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a very difficult thing to explain. I suppose the, the tidiest explanation is that it's sort of a participatory group conspiracy theory, which is based on the idea that a secret military intelligence operative uh, codenamed Q, um, Q being a reference to a high-level military classification, is secretly working with Donald Trump and an array of other, a, a cast of characters to take down an evil deep state cabal, which include the Democrats and a lot of the mainstream media, Hollywood celebrities and so on, who are supposedly um, cannibalistic paedophiles. That's that's the uh, shortest explanation I can, can manage. How has uh, QAnon, with its origins in the United States, it appears to have travelled to Australia, and I do believe that Outside of the United States, Australia is one of its principal homes. I mean, yes and no. So it has absolutely expanded internationally, and particularly over the, the period of the COVID crisis, we've really seen it explode. So Australia is certainly a, a significant, I guess, international QAnon outpost, but actually Germany is probably probably leading for the biggest QAnon community outside the US at this point in time. It's really, it's really blown up there over the last couple of months. There's also large communities in Canada, in the UK. We're starting to see it make inroads in a lot of very unexpected places. I've come across QAnon groups uh, in Serbia, in Thailand. It's really exploding internationally at the moment. I saw yesterday that uh, apparently the deep underground military bases in Australia are some of the worst, and uh, luckily the US military is clearing them out from under the Dandenongs. Is, is Australia looming larger within the conspiracy? I mean, it's, it's as I said, like it's, it's probably, in terms of international rankings, Australia is probably somewhere behind uh, Germany or Canada, but certainly it's a... 
yeah, there is a really significant outgrowth of the conspiracy here. And I think the interesting thing is the way in which we're seeing the QAnon conspiracy interact with kind of more local conspiracies. So there's been a, a, a growing intersection between the, the QAnon conspiracy and the, uh, the sovereign citizen conspiracy, which is a slightly different conspiratorial strain that sort of holds that the government has no power or limited power over um, quote unquote sovereign citizens. And we've seen a couple of really interesting kind of mashups of these two conspiracy theories recently. And I, I think that sort of demonstrates the way in which, particularly during the COVID crisis, but even before then, the ways in which social media platforms have a tendency to mash up conspiracy communities together. So what you end up with is sort of this, uh, this strange mix of a lot of different conspiracy strands. What would you describe as being the relationship between QAnon as a conspiracy and uh, the right wing? Because it appears to be the case that QAnon is a, a fairly popular kind of conspiracy within the certainly the extreme right. I mean, yeah, it, obviously it depends which part of the right wing you're talking about. And so QAnon in itself is a right wing conspiracy. There's a lot of crossover between sort of QAnon, of course, was sort of birthed out of the Chan board. So, you know, uh, 8chan, 4chan, now 8kun. And so it does sort of have its its genesis in that kind of very right-wing Chan culture. It's sort of expanded out now so that the, I guess the demographics, at least within the US, obviously internationally it's different, but within the US, the demographics of QAnon tend to, it's a subset of Trump's base because this is a pro-Trump political conspiracy. And so obviously in that sense, they are right wing. That being said, sort of the the really, and, and, and there are sort of um, racist and xenophobic and, and sexist undertones to QAnon. That being said, there's also a lot of disdain from some right wing groups for QAnon conspiracists because QAnon is, is perceived, even by, you know, the, the kind of people who hang out on 4chan and think that racist frogs are funny, even they think QAnon is uncool. So there is a certain level of, of disdain from some some white ring groups for QAnon. So it's, it's really a bit of a mixed picture depending on which groups you're talking about. Trump himself has uh, retweeted on many occasions QAnon-related material. How, what, what kind of effect does that have, do you think, on the general public's reading of QAnon to witness uh, the President of the United States seemingly giving uh, perhaps tacit approval to some of these ideas? Look, it sort of serves as a dog whistle. So for, for most people who aren't familiar with the QAnon conspiracy, those references will just fly completely over their head and they'll just be unaware of what the, the implications are. But for for QAnon conspiracy theorists, yeah, it's absolutely, it's a dog whistle. It's a, it's a huge encouragement. And it's not just Trump that's doing it as well. So, for example, in July, we saw General Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor, actually get on Twitter and film himself swearing the QAnon oath, which is a, an oath that, that QAnon followers were swearing on, on social media. And the fact that Flynn himself got up and filmed himself doing that has been just a, just massively supercharged the QAnon conspiracy movement. The whole QAnon Pizzagate thing seems to really draw people in a lot more quickly than other conspiracy theories. Uh, it's not unusual to look at someone posting QAnon material and go back through their Facebook feed and see that like one particular doco they watched in March or April was sort of a, a point where they went from being you know normal to being fully Q-pilled. Uh, what is it about this content do you think that uh, draws people in so quickly? 
Well, I think that what makes QAnon so successful is that it really is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a participatory conspiracy. So it's not just a set of conspiratorial beliefs, it's also a hobby. So because, because um, you know, the way it functions is that this uh, individual or group of individuals who are posing as Q and sort of post these coded messages, they call Q drops, onto a particular image board. And then there's this kind of collective process of quote-unquote decoding the Q drops. And that that sort of turns it into a, um, a participatory process. It's it, it's a fun game as well as being a, a set of, you know, <laughs> deeply strange beliefs. And yeah, that participatory and like kind of community nature of QAnon is, I think, really crucial to what has made it so successful. What do you think has been the um, impact of the virus upon the tendency of people to adopt, seemingly, uh, be more ready to adopt this kind of conspiratorial thinking? I mean, I think it's a, a combination of factors. I think at the at the most obvious level, you just have a lot of people who are spending a lot more time isolated in their homes on the internet. And as obvious and as silly as maybe that sounds, I think we shouldn't discount the, the simple fact that people are spending much more time online. On top of that, you have, I guess, the psychological stresses and pressures that are coming with the COVID pandemic and that sort of fear of the disease itself, but also financial disempowerment, financial losses, all of which are taking a significant toll on people's mental health. And I think there, I think there is a correlation between sort of widespread mental health um, mental health concerns and uh, an explosion in conspiracy theories like this. And we've, we've seen, like, as you, you mentioned earlier, Andy, um, there are a lot of people who have fallen very deep and hard into QAnon in just the last couple of months, and that's not coincidental. So a lot of these people, for example, we've seen um, uh, there have been a couple of particularly high-profile incidents in the United States, one woman who was uh, looking for Joe Biden um, and had some, some weapons on her and who clearly had a history of mental health issues and had very recently become a QAnon convert. So we're sort of seeing um, the intersection of QAnon with a lot of other bigger issues around stresses, around financial crises, around mental health. And we're seeing QAnon be an accelerator to a lot of that. You've um, written quite extensively about the use of the internet as a means of spreading disinformation and misinformation and the role of social media in perpetuating these sorts of ideas. It seems to be the case that whatever the nature of the content, uh, engagement is critical to the profitability of these uh, corporations. So I'm wondering, in the absence of some form of legislative mechanism or financial penalty that attaches to the publication of these sorts of materials, do you think that there's any other way of addressing the spread of this kind of uh, information? Do you mean addressing it through consumer pressure? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, there there have been a couple of incidences when I've been doing research on this where I found like particular companies' ads which were being showed on YouTube, for example, ahead of QAnon or conspiracy or anti Bill Gates videos. And I think there is absolutely room for consumer pressure around around that kind of thing. And actually, in a couple of those cases, I did contact the company and let them know that was happening. And as far as I'm aware, they acted quickly to, to try and prevent their ads from being shown next to this content because it's not a good look for the company either. So I think there is kind of room for consumer action in the same way that we're now seeing consumer action around, for example, the spreading of hate speech on Facebook. We could look at doing something like that. There is a real growth of an industry around around QAnon and around other kinds of conspiracy theories. You can buy just a vast array of conspiracy merchandise these days, particularly on platforms like uh, Amazon, like eBay, like Shopify. And I think one of the, the levers 
potentially in terms of creating consumer and financial pressure would be to start a campaign to try and get these companies to get this merchandise off their platform and make this less profitable. Something else social media companies have been doing recently is uh, fact-checking and trying to provide uh, alternative information to people spreading these conspiracy theories. Do you think that the way they're going about that uh, is enough or do you think it's working? I mean, it's, it's, it's a really tricky issue um, in that I, I absolutely think that fact-checking is an important and valuable step. Having said that, it quite often backfires with sort of really committed conspiracists who will just say, oh, they're lying, oh, they're fake news, what are they trying to cover up? So in some ways it can end up actually confirming their conspiratorial beliefs. It's the same, same issue as sort of removing conspiratorial content or trying to take it off the platforms. For some really committed conspiracists, it only serves as proof that someone is trying to silence them. It is a really tricky issue. And it also so I think there's a, a tendency to kind of oversimplify conspiracy theories into trying to make them an issue of only like information literacy. It's not just about information literacy. Um, it's about uh, what I was talking about before in terms of like the participatory community nature of, of QAnon in particular, but also other conspiracy theories. These are communities and there are sort of a lot of elements around community and identity formation and emotional and mental health, which contribute to why people can participate in conspiracy theories beyond simply issues of information literacy. So I think the, the fact-checking is a good step. I think hopefully it will stop people, people who are not already engaged in the conspiracy theories, it'll stop them from going any deeper down those rabbit holes. But I think for committed conspiracists in particular, we have to be looking at other measures as well. I saw one this week uh, about Bill Gates uh delivering some sort of speech about how they were going to track everyone with their vaccines and it had been fact-checked. This is from a movie and all of the comments were saying, oh, so maybe it isn't Bill Gates, it's just someone who looks like him laying out the New World Order's plan to track us all with the vaccines. Yeah, it's interesting um, the way Bill Gates has really emerged as a real conspiracy villain over the course of the, the COVID-19 pandemic in, in a similar way that sort of George Soros, for example, has served as a conspiracy villain for a lot of the right wing for, for decades by this point. And a lot of that has to do actually with Gates's role with the Gates Foundation and with vaccination programs, particularly in, in African countries, for example, with the Gates Foundation. And so it's sort of that that weird nexus of like pre-existing anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories which already targeted Bill Gates, sort of supercharged by the pandemic. Something that we've seen in the past in terms of vaccine conspiracy theories is the the way they spread through the Arab world after the US government used them as a ruse to track Bin Laden. Uh, what is the these Bill Gates conspiracy theories, what impact are they having in Africa in terms of real-world effect? I mean, at this point, because we don't have a COVID vaccine, I think it sort of remains to be seen exactly what impact they'll have, for example, on the COVID response. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know that much off the top of my head about specific African countries and vaccinations since COVID-19. I don't know if anybody's done any... I'll look into that, actually, whether anybody's done any sort of like large-scale studies about the impacts. But I, I don't have any like specific information at this point. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Elise Thomas about QAnon and conspiracy theories. I thought it was really interesting in foreign policy recently wrote uh, about COVID conspiracies, and you mentioned a, a Soviet-era influence operation called Operation Infection, which was spreading the idea that uh, HIV was a bioweapon and had been developed at, at a place in the US called Fort Detrick. And that's a conspiracy theory that has popped up again recently, that COVID was developed at Fort Detrick, uh, and it seems to be especially one that's spread in China. 
Uh, what have you been seeing in terms of state actors contributing to spreading these theories? Yeah, we've, we've absolutely seen uh, state actors contributing to, to fueling conspiracy theories around COVID-19 and particularly around the origins of the virus. And we've seen that coming both from, um, as you mentioned, China with sort of spreading this conspiracy theory that perhaps it didn't originate in China, perhaps it actually came from the US, from Fort Detrick, and whether uh, you know it was brought to China, for example, as part of the Wuhan military games back in 2019. And then on the US side, of course, we've seen a lot of promotion of the the conspiracy theory that it was deliberately leaked from the Wuhan biolab there there in the city. Um, and again, there's no evidence to support that that is the case. Uh, so we have certainly seen conspiratorial boosting on, on both sides. We've also recently witnessed the publication of a letter decrying cancel culture and the restrictions that are being placed on free speech. I guess one of the concerns in that context is if social media and other internet publishers begin to censor or to repress material, there are certain dangers involved with that in the sense that people can justifiably or not decry this censorship. And it also feeds into the notion that what's being repressed is the truth. And we know that because it would not be it wouldn't otherwise be repressed. So what? how do you think that this, these sorts of issues can be tackled productively given concerns over things like cancel culture and um, freedom of speech? Look, I, I don't think there's any one answer to that. I think it's always going to be very situationally dependent. In and, and in some ways I think it's sort of a healthy process that as a society we have an ongoing conversation about what is acceptable speech and what and how unacceptable speech should be handled, whether it should be, for example, taken off the platforms or whether it should be responded to with counter speech. And that is obviously this particular wrinkle with that with conspiracy theorists, as, as you alluded to, in that when you take conspiracy content down or you sort of quote unquote silence conspiracy speech, they do tend to take that as validation of their own conspiratorial beliefs. Um, so it is really situationally dependent and there is a lot of grey zones in there. I don't think anybody's yet discovered a silver bullet for handling it perfectly. I think the the platforms are certainly making a significant effort around COVID-19 disinformation and misinformation conspiracy theories. Having said that, it is it is a really tricky nut to crack. You've also written about the threat the uh, extreme right poses in Australia, specifically with regards the emergence of another, uh, you know, a terrorist actor. When you're examining material on the internet, and there's a lot of it in which people make threats of one kind or another. How do you distinguish between those who are simply uh, expressing a certain gut feeling or, um, as the colloquial term is, shitposting, from those who may constitute a genuine threat? Because we now know that uh, the Christchurch killer did publish materials online which were threatening, but he's, you know, an individual who went on to commit a, a terrible crime. Obviously, not all those who engage in that kind of publication are going to go on and, and commit some you know, dreadful acts. So how do you go about looking at this material and deciding for yourself, adjudicating as to what person or group might constitute a real threat and those who are simply engaged in this kind of marginal let's say, uh, internet subculture? I mean, I'm, you know, I, I don't work for law enforcement. I don't work for intelligence agencies. So it's not necessarily my role to go out and try to ident identify specific individuals who may constitute 
um, a real a real threat in terms of physical violence. Um, having said that, yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to separate, particularly with these sort of very you know very online communities where they have a, a really you know sarcastic, jokey approach to talking about some pretty terrible things to establish for who it actually is a joke and for who it's it's literally deadly serious in some cases. And we've seen that particularly around the uh, emerging kind of boogaloo movement, which is centered in the United States. It is very loosely based around the idea idea of encouraging a forthcoming civil war. Um, and for, for some of that community, like uh, a lot of it is about, it's, it's sort of very heavily based around like posting memes and posting jokes. And for, you know, I, I would imagine the majority of the people involved in that activity, it really is a joke. Um, they're not actually about to go out and try to try to shoot up a police, uh, you know, a, a police office or something. But then we have actually over the past few months seen a number of genuine violent attacks linked to that movement as well, um, including a particular case of a, an individual who shot multiple police officers and then scrawled uh, sayings linked to the Boogaloo across a car in his own blood, right? So it's it's sort of this tension where you have sort of people for whom it is actually a joke and for people who it, for whom it is the kind of thing that you will, you know, scroll in your own blood, um, uh interacting with each other in much the same sort of a way. It is a really difficult situation. How do you see the CVE or the CT industry being able to respond to conspiracy theories? It seems like it's an area that they're going to have to increasingly focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the interesting lessons of the COVID crisis, and and I hope sort of over the next few years, we'll be sort of taking a t- taking a deeper look at, I guess, what is considered extremism. Um, and I sort of by that, I mean, moving beyond sort of looking specifically, for example, at Islamic extremism, or specifically at uh, white supremacism, for example, to, to looking at issues around conspiracy extremism, but also looking at, um, for example, like the rise of incel, incel extremism, which is sort of a violent misogynist attacks, you know, whether whether the, the the space of CV and CT needs to expand to look at sort of these um, quote-unquote non-traditional terrorism movements. Another, I guess, uh, reasonably popular conspiracy theory is referred to as the Great Replacement, which involves the replacement of white populations in places like Australia and elsewhere uh, by non-white populations. One of those who uh, has espoused this theory is uh, Lauren Southern. Uh, who toured here a couple of years ago. She's recently relocated to Australia, and I thought it was interesting that um, upon her relocation, she published in uh, The Spectator in Australia and also appeared on Sky News. What does that say, do you think, about the preparedness of relatively mainstream media organisations to give those sorts of actors and those sorts of ideas a platform? Look, we're, we're really not prepared. Um, and I, I think you've seen that in just the um, just the last few days, in fact, with the decision by the Today Show to bring Deanna Lorraine onto their show. Um, Deanna Lorraine has a long and colourful history of flirting with conspiracy theories. And I think, in fact, as, as, you, as you saw on the show, the decision to bring her on maybe should have been uh, considered differently. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Elise. If people want to find you on Twitter, it's Elise Thomas, but with a five instead of that last S. Thanks very much. That was very interesting, Andy. It was, Ken. Is there anything else interesting that we should be letting our listeners know about? Yes, we should. Uh, listeners uh, should be uh, informed of the fact that uh, this July 25th, which is Saturday, is the International Day of Solidarity with Anti-Fascist Prisoners. And for more information, if you jump online and Google uh, or search for that term, uh, you'll be able to find more information and ways in which you can support those anti-fascists who are behind bars for their activism. Indeed. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. 
We'll be back next week, won't we, Cam? We will. See ya. Bye-bye.
Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal Australian or a health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter.